Hi, Grace Fullerton. Good to be here with you all. If you don't know who I am, I'm Eric Tonis. I'm usually over in La Mirada. I'm one of the elders at Grace, and I love coming over here. My family takes up almost a whole row. There's my family. Wave to everyone, family. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Isaac is coming. We have another boy coming, hopefully by February, March. Well, it's good to be with you all. I'm glad, glad we're here together. If you'd open your Bibles to Mark 1, I just loved our time of worship this morning. It really struck me as we were singing through so many of those songs, how Christians are these very weird people who sing about their own frailty. That is, talk about countercultural. Talk about something different in a self-esteem boosting culture where we're constantly told we're a firework and we're exactly the way we're supposed to be. And um, I'm not sure I want to be a firework. I, I was watching him last night driving through Anaheim as they were going off at Disney. I thought something was wrong with my car at first. It was very strange. I said, my car is thumping. No, that's firework. And they just fade out. I'm not sure I want to be a firework. But um, we sing about our frailty. We sing about our weakness. We sing about our sin. And we enjoy that. And the reason we enjoy it is because God is so strong and he's our father. And so we are able to affirm our own weakness in light of his strength, in light of his care for us out of that strength. And so it's a weird thing. It's, I, like, I like being weird as Christians sometimes. Sometimes we try to fit in so well and we want to be liked. It's good to be different in some obvious ways. And one of the ways is we affirm our frailty, that worship is not Christian if it's not grounded in our own weakness, our own need. And we have a story today in Mark 1, actually three separate sections of stories that talk about people in great need. And if you don't come here this morning with a sense of your neediness, then this is all going to be lost on you. And so we come to church because we're needy in large part, and uh, that's what I hope you're feeling today as well. Let me pray for us. Lord, help us now as we go to your word. Thank you for your word. I thank you that it gives us light and food and direction and points us to you ultimately. Help us now as we go to these great verses in Mark to learn all that you want us to. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark 1. We've been preaching through Mark. If you've been here, you know that. And Mark is a book that people who are impatient like I am find easy to enjoy. Mark is a fast-moving book. He loves the word immediately, this, this word that keeps the action moving. And he loves vivid detail. He moves from one dramatic event to the next, and it's a thrilling book to take a tour through, and so I'm privileged to be able to take us through a few more scenes here. Mark 1, 29 is where, where we'll pick it up. Let me put it in context for us. We're in Capernaum, this place that was the headquarters of Jesus' ministry, his Galilean ministry, which was his earlier ministry, and actually in Galilee, this region, he spends most of his life most of his life is spent within a 30-mile radius, believe that or not. Some, Jesus spent most of his life in the distance that many of you commute every day. Have you ever thought about that? We think that to be influential, you need to travel all over the world. Not Jesus. He invested in a few people in a small area, and it changed the world. 
should be encouraging to us as we seek to have a ministry to a few people and think of the world change it could bring about. But Jesus here is in Capernaum. He's just healed a demon-possessed man in the synagogue on the Sabbath. And then we pick up our story. And I want you to think about the Bible as what it is. It's historic. It's got historical grounding to it. The, the God we're worshiping is a God who's revealed himself in history. He's not a God who's primarily dropped principles from heaven to us, sort of timeless principles, which many religions are mainly about. But no, this is a God who since creation has been revealing himself in time to real people. And that makes the Bible hard. I think that's right at the heart of why the Bible's hard for us to understand, because to get it, you need to put on the sandals of sometimes people thousands of years old and walk in those sandals and understand the context because God reveals himself in a context, in history. And this is a real place, Capernaum. And I've been there, Don, and I have been to Capernaum. Who's been to Capernaum? Anyone? Yes, that's right. You guys just recently, it's still fresh in your minds. I need pictures to remember and say, oh, yes, I actually have some photos of Capernaum. Look at that. Is that cool? Jesus heals in the synagogue and... That's the synagogue. It didn't look exactly like that when Jesus was there, uh, not just because it's, it's fallen apart now, but because this is a, a, a what's the word I'm looking for? We, uh, we re, uh, not a restoration, a, uh, no, <laughs> what did we do to our house a few years ago? We remodeled it. Yes, this is a remodeled synagogue here. And, um, and, but, but this is where the synagogue was in the first century that Jesus just healed this demon-possessed man. This is the neighborhood it's in. You can see these homes. It's beautifully excavated. I have another photo here of the octagonal church, it's called. And this was a destination for pilgrims because this was a headquarter of Jesus' ministry for centuries to, to go to this place. And then the next photo, we have the inside of the synagogue there, first century um, this inside looks similar to this. And then in this last photo, this is probably, archaeologists think, the neighborhood of the home Jesus is about to go into here. And they, they built this sort of UFO-looking building there. It's not, it's not what I would have built if I were in charge of this thing, but I didn't put up the money for it so they can do whatever they want. Um, but, but this is the neighborhood, and that might be the house that is, is Peter and John's house we're about to go into here. And it's over that, that site. Is that amazing that there's the neighborhood that we're about to read about? The, the Bible can take on mythical uh, ideas for us where it's otherworldly, like some, some myth we're reading. No, these are real places with real people in real time we're about to read about. So when I went, when I went to Israel, the thing that impressed me most was how unimpressive things were. They were puny and dusty and dry and dirty and real and not these big mythical things. So, so here we are. Verse 29 of Mark 1 is where we'll pick the story up. It's the Sabbath. They're in Capernaum. They uh, just saw Jesus heal a demon-possessed man in the synagogue. Very dramatic display. And now we pick up a story in verse 29 of Mark 1. And immediately, Mark loves the word immediately, I told you. Yes, there he is. And immediately, we'll see it a couple more times in our story. Immediately, he left the synagogue and entered a house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now, 
Simon's mother-in-law, Simon is another name for Peter, Simon Peter. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. So we find out here Peter's married. His mother-in-law is living with them, very common at this time. Um, Mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately, there it is again, they told him about her. And this is not because Mark was impatient or he's writing for impatient people. He's using immediately. Why do you think he might keep using the word immediately? What's he trying to, to do there, do you think? What, what, do, you, what do you think? Why, why do you think Mark loves the word immediately? Any idea? What, what might be going on there? Not a rhetorical question. Uh, yeah. <laughs> what do you think? I mean, he's describing the action, but he, he's making a point here. What do you think he's trying to do with all these immediately's? What's that? Okay, Jesus doesn't wait around. Yeah, Aslan's on the move, right? Uh, there's, this, there's this movement of the kingdom. He wants us to know that Jesus and his kingdom is on the move. He's making progress. He's not dilly-dallying toward advancing his kingdom. Yes, right, exactly. Good. Lily. All right. Um, and immediately left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew and James and John. So he's up to four disciples now. He's on his way to 12, but now he's only got four. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her. And she began to serve them. Sometimes fever for us can be a minor thing. In the first century, this word here is uh, something that is not just a symptom of an illness or something you can get up and go to work with anyway. This is a serious illness, probably a life-threatening illness she has here. And Jesus heals her dramatically. Verse 32. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. So it's been the Sabbath. Sabbath begins at sundown on Friday, ends at sundown on Saturday. So the Sabbath, as it comes to a close, now moves into a public healing service. Jesus is defying religious and social conventions by healing on the Sabbath. He's not subject to that. He's, he's showing that that's the wrong way of thinking about the Sabbath. He's constantly undermining these religious traditions that don't match up with what the intent of the laws were. And so he's, he's defying that, but the people generally are respecting that. And now that the Sabbath is ending, they're bringing these people to be healed. Public healing service going on now. They brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, 33. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. Listen to this. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Very interesting. 35. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. 
And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. Searched is probably a weak word for, uh, of a translation. Hunted may be appropriate there. This is a strong uh, looking for. They're, they're ardently trying to find him. They searched for him and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. They're not happy. And he said to them, let's go on to the next towns that I may preach there also for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him. A horrible disease often primarily affects the extremities. Circulatory death is what happens. Uh, it's grossly disfiguring very often and creates not just a physical damage but causes a social, cultural, uh, religious casting out, marginalized, not with everyone else, living outside the city. So Jesus leaves the city, he leaves, leaves the place of the masses, the crowds, and it's only there he'll find a man like this. A leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, say that you say nothing to anyone but go, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for proof to them. So Jesus is defying religious and social convention. He's, he's messing with common interpretations of the law, but he's clearly not rejecting and he's not disrespecting it. He's still respecting the law. He sends this guy on a journey all the way to Jerusalem to see a priest and respect the cleansing rituals. 45. But the leper went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus, here's the result of this man's disobedience, so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places. There's that term again we saw regarding where he was praying. Was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. All right. What a great group of, of stories there. So, all right, I'm interested. If you were preaching this sermon this morning, what would you make sure we emphasized? What would you not want us to miss? Let's, let's have a conversation here. Let's talk together. Let's collectively dig into this passage. What was really important as we went through that that struck you? What do you think? Let's just continue to blast away at any spectator mentality you may have wandered in here with. Uh, that's not why we come to church, to spectate. All right, what, what do you think? What was important here as we went through this? What do you think? Uh, what Jesus wants is definitely not always what we want. 
Uh, what Jesus wants is definitely not always what we want. W why do you say that? Yeah, it's so interesting and counterintuitive that it seems, practically speaking and intuitively, you build on what's going on here in Capernaum. And his disciples are saying, everybody's looking for you. Come on, this thing's taking off. And he says, yeah, I know. Let's leave. <laughs> yeah, so different is his agenda than ours often will be. Good, excelente. What else? Ah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he's referred to as a common, uneducated man. And actually, he's referred to that way in Acts 4 when it says, and the people, when the people saw the boldness of the apostles and that they were common, uneducated men, they knew they had been with Jesus. So not only was he out among the people, he was one of them. It, it, there wasn't this, oh, look, Jesus is hanging out with us. It, it wasn't that surprising, right? Yeah, he was with the people. He, he was not pontificating from on high. Yeah, good, excellent. What else? Okay. Yeah. So the first thing is he, his emotions are involved in this. This isn't just some calculated strategy. He's a heart man. His heart is engaged and moved toward people. This, this word is just this great word in Greek. It's, it, it means your, your guts are overturned within you toward someone. It's a very physical sort of feeling-based sort of word. Yeah, you, you are moving toward. He cares deeply about individuals. Not just about a grand thing, but a specific personal thing. Good. Excellent. What else? Right. Yes. Yeah, so, so his spiritual healing, his physical healing, has a very physical component to it. It's it's a ministry that rolls up his sleeves and moves toward people. And, and it says he touches her hand. It's a beautiful image there. He he raises up the mother-in-law. He touches the hand of a leper, which probably the most effective part, uh, affected part of leprosy is, is the hand that, that is no doubt deformed and contagious. And he moves toward anyway. Yeah, beautiful image there. Communicating tons. Yeah. The kind of hero that Jesus was, because when we think of heroes, or if we were to have those kind of powers, we would wield it in a very different yeah. way. Even as believers, I don't think we grasp the full depth of a lot of what we've been talking about here, how he's condescending, how he's reaching down, how he's thinking about this broader picture and acting in faithfulness rather than doing what appears to be the more flashy or showy or better yeah. thing to do, yeah. but it's a deeper wisdom and a greater plan. Yes, well said, very well said. It's a deeper wisdom, a, a better plan. Good, excellent, yeah. Um, the secrecy of not wanting to reveal who he is. Yeah. Very interesting, isn't it? He, he's actually trying to quell popularity. He's trying to limit those who get in the know. Very interesting. It's called the messianic secret. Why? Why is he putting the lid on this? We'll talk about that in a little bit. Yeah. Um, how he's healing the 
about yeah, yeah. Yeah, it tells the demons to shut up because they know who he is. Yeah, very interesting. Good. What else, Jess? In, in the midst of this flurry of healing and teaching, he's still getting up early in the morning and separating himself and meeting with the Father. Yeah. Which is related to this better agenda. There are all these desperate needs, but his priorities, his, his commitments are driving him to do something that even the disciples are, seem ticked about. They just don't get this decision to go off and pray early in the morning before it's even light. Yeah, good. What else? Anything else strike you we need to get? Yeah. I think it's really exciting for them probably to see darkness fleeing from Jesus, you know, whereas that whole region, you know, Isaiah talks about people walking in darkness. Yes. Right, right. Yeah, the title of the sermon is Pushing Back the Darkness. That's what's happening. And you do that with light. You don't just push back the darkness. You push it back with light. You replace it with what enables sight and freedom. Good. Excellent. You guys are brilliant. We could do this all day. I wish we could. Here we go. Let me make some, some concluding points here. Uh, you, you've, you've all wonderfully preached much of the sermon, which I love, which is what I wanted. But let's think about this. We're learning about Jesus. When you read the Bible, go on a character of God hunt. More than anything else, you're finding out who God is. You want to know who God is. So when you see anything in the Bible, keep asking yourself the question, who is God according to this proverb, according to this parable, according to this story, according to this action of God, this description of God? Who is he? Who is God? And for us, more specifically as Christians, that means you ask, who is Jesus? because we behold the glory of God in the face of Christ. And so the, the book of Mark is about the advance of the kingdom, but it's fundamentally about the king. That's what we need to be asking. Every time we read the Bible, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus in light of this passage? How do I understand this passage in light of who Jesus is? So we go on a God hunt, we go on a Jesus hunt, and here we find out some very important things about Jesus. He's the king. And the first thing we find out about this king is that he's a conquering king. It is very easy to get caught up in the displays of miracles. And I, I think that's one of the great problems with the miraculous is we see it as an end in itself. We love the dramatic of it. We love the, the, the healing of it, the effects of it. But it's not ever supposed to be an end in itself. It always points to something greater. John calls these things signs, pointers away from themselves to who Jesus is and what he's ultimately about. These miracles can't be ends in themselves. And one of the great tragedies is that even in the church, when God does the miraculous, often the miraculous gets the attention rather than the God who's doing these things. And we have healing ministries, which don't have primarily God as the centerpiece of it all. And Jesus isn't exalted. The miracles are exalted. The miracle worker is exalted. And that's not the point of all of this. And as we saw, Jesus is even putting those sorts of displays aside because I believe he knows our tendency and won't keep emphasizing those things. 
He, he puts a, a lid on them to a degree because he's got other priorities. So he's the conquering king. So when you see a miracle, think, oh, Jesus the king is taking back his kingdom. The Bible says that the world is under the oppressive reign of spiritual powers of darkness. And as Jesus advances and his kingdom advances, he's pushing back the darkness. He's advancing his kingdom. The king is on the move. And that's what we see here. So when you see the king do, do this, think about his kingdom advancing and ultimately about the king. That's what he's after here. So to believe this, you got to believe two fundamental things. One, the spiritual realm is real. It's powerful. You don't explain everything by scientific method and rash, merely rational means. doesn't mean we believe irrational or illogical or unscientific things, but we believe things that transcend those things that are well beyond mere scientifically verifiable, demonstrable, uh, in a laboratory sort of thing. I just had a conversation with a brother whose uh, daughter is in a state university and her, her prof walked in, her science professor walked in the first day and said, if you're a Christian by the time you leave this class, I've been a failure. That was his goal, to undermine her Christian faith. Based on all sorts of presuppositions, no doubt, that defy Christian belief. And so we're seeing here, if you don't believe in the supernatural, if you don't believe in the miraculous, if you don't believe in the spiritual, well, the Bible's incoherent, which is why Thomas Jefferson took a knife to it and cut miracles out. But if you're coming uh, unquestioning of those sorts of assumptions, boy, I really challenge you to be more liberal than that, more open-minded than that, and, and think, wow, why am I ruling out the spiritual, the supernatural, the miraculous? Can I really explain reality without those things? And, and ask those honest questions of yourself. So here we clearly are assuming the spiritual, assuming the miraculous. At the heart of the Christian faith is the miraculous, a man rising from the dead, conquering death forever. So if you don't have a massive category for this, then you can't be a Christian, not in any biblical way. Do you know a third of the Gospel of Mark is miracle? And so if you don't, you, if you don't have a basis for this, boy, this is going to be really troubling. So I would just challenge you to be troubled with a purely naturalistic scientific worldview that says, wow, can I explain everything apart from the spiritual realm? But here we assume that. And the other thing we've got to be assuming is that evil really exists. If you explain everything from a, an anti-supernatural, a naturalistic, purely scientific method of, of attaining truth, well, then you really don't have a basis for things like evil. You just explain everything by mechanistic, impersonal uh, uh, effects, which is what we try to do with evil. And what's wild is in our culture to watch unspeakable evil displayed on our computer screens in things like beheadings or wives being beaten in elevators by NFL football players. And we have all of this righteous indignation rise in us. And if you don't have a definition of evil that's really evil, you don't know how to talk about it. And it's wild to watch our culture feel this indignation without the categories to do it. Well, Christians have the categories to talk about evil as evil. And goodness as goodness. And so clearly there's an evil that Jesus is pushing back here. And we don't explain evil by, oh, you know, we just had bad parents or need more education or need more social programs. or, or No, we, we don't solve it that way. We don't explain it that way. 
The Bible clearly sees the spiritual realm and evil as realities. That's why Ephesians 6 says this, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, our, that's not our ultimate battle, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. If you try to explain everything sociologically, psychologically, th then you don't have categories like this. And I don't think you have the ability to actually define and talk about things you feel very deeply. So evil is real, the spiritual realm is real, and Jesus rules over it. And Jesus is conquering in it. Listen to what one commentator says. Remember, we, we just saw Jesus meet this demonic. We saw him meet him in the synagogue. We see him heal this leper now. Listen to how one commentator puts it. Just as the unclean spirit controls the man in the synagogue that Jesus heals just before we come to our scenes, the Holy Spirit is taking control of Jesus. Do you remember in the beginning of Mark, Jesus is baptized by the spirit at the beginning of his ministry, led out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, by the spirit. So the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit is indwelling Jesus, is controlling Jesus, is empowering Jesus. And now he meets an unclean man with an unclean spirit and an unclean body in leprosy. And what happens when those two meet? Just as the unclean spirit controls the man in the synagogue, the Holy Spirit's taking control of Jesus. The one who preaches the gospel of God is the Holy One of God. And when the holy and unclean meet, it's no contest. The one John predicted would unleash the Spirit of God and immediately disarm the unclean spirit. The ousting of the unclean spirits affirms that we're not in this battle with evil alone, nor do we need to be helpless victims. We have a sense of power. We have a reality that is ours in Christ. He's a, a, the only one who can defeat the powers of darkness. And God has won the decisive victory over Satan in Christ, ultimately at the cross. All of this is heading toward the cross. That's why preaching is the focal point, because that's the good news of Jesus saving us. I was, I was reading this, uh, preparing for this a couple weeks ago, and I was amazed at the realization that how great it is that this mother-in-law was healed, this leper is healed, the man in the synagogue is healed. And you know what I thought then? Yeah, and then they all died. <laughs> you ever think about that? As glorious as these healings are, they all had to face the ultimate enemy. They're only these temporary cures. The mother-in-law died. The demon-possessed man died. The leper died. Yeah, he was healed of his leprosy, but I don't know how much longer it took for him to be in the grave. So if these short-term solutions are the ultimate for you, and you're not dealing with the ultimate problems and the ultimate solution, then these are useless. They're so short-lived, it's not even helpful. It's discouraging. But Jesus is pointing us beyond these things to the ultimate solution that he offers in his life and death and resurrection over the punishment of sin that we all deserve. And the wages of sin, which is death. Jesus conquers death, not just the temporary displays of the effects of sin, but he solves the problem ultimately once and for all. Would you at some point this week sit down and carefully read Romans 6, 1 through 11? I'd love to start an entirely different sermon on that passage right now, but we can't. So please, Romans 6, 1 through 11, and read how Jesus has conquered the ultimate enemy of sin and death in our lives, which we needed most. Jesus says in John 16, in the world you'll have trouble. 
but take heart, I've overcome the world. And he does that by defeating our sin. So Jesus is the conquering king. The second thing he is, is the compassionate king. A couple of you beautifully pointed this out. He touches the mother-in-law's hand and, and physically helps her get up. He touches the hand of the leper in this personal, physical expression of compassion and engagement. Man, I I think about scenes like this, and I think about how technically mediated so much of our relationships are these days. This technological distance where a hand touch isn't even possible, and and we start to value that even more than the face-to-face. We need to be very careful about how effective we think relationships can be if there's not the possibility of touching someone's hand. Just throw that out there for your consideration. Uh, But but this is a model of Jesus that he gives us. Think about in Mark how Jairus' daughter dies and he's heartbroken over his daughter. And Jesus comes and he takes her by the hand. And he says, little girl, arise. And he brings her to life again. And he says, make sure she has something to eat. She must be hungry. He cares about these details of her life. He touches the blind man's eyes as he heals him. He touches the deaf man's ears as he heals him. It says he touches many and heals them of their diseases. Jesus was personal in his ministry and physical in his ministry and present in his ministry. We really need to think about this. We can want to isolate ourselves. We can want to um, insulate ourselves from the difficulty and the dirtiness and, and the infections of this world so that we're not ministering like Jesus. No, Christians are the people who say, I so believe God is healing me and helping me and protecting me that I can not only deal with my own stuff, I can move into a world and inherit the stuff of other people that they're dealing with, the garbage in their lives that I can make my own. That's what Christians do. They they move to places that look so risky when you don't know a God who's taking care of you. And you bring on the challenges and the obstacles and the difficulty and the damage of the lives of other people into your own. You bear one another's burdens. It's at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. Jesus identifies with compassion with these hurting people. I think of Kent Brantley, this, this physician who contracted Ebola because he decided to go help diseased people knowing, and he wasn't foolhardy. He wasn't reckless or stupid. He just knew no one else was going to help, and so he needed to do it. And he he exposed himself to disease. He was willing to do it. And it's not, in some ways, the physical exposure is easier for us sometimes. Are we willing to open ourselves up to relational difficulty and emotional difficulty and financial difficulty because we're getting splattered by the mess in other people's lives sometimes? Are we willing to do that? Are we, are we like Jesus in this because he's so taking care of us? That's the sort of people we need to be, the ones who are willing to have open arms in ways that feel so risky until you see how powerful God is to take care of us and use us in the lives of other people. Do we reach out and touch the hurting, hurt of all kinds, not just physical? So, he's a conquering king, He's a compassionate king, and he's a prayerful king. We see so clearly in this passage, 35, 
through 39 that prayer is a priority for Jesus. And what that means is his intimacy with the Father is his priority. That's at the heart of his life and ministry. And so whatever cultivates that intimacy with the Father drives him. And the masses can wait because he's got to be with the Father in prayer. He's obviously a man of the word. He's a man who devotes himself to developing intimacy with God. This is not something that happens naturally. Jesus had spiritual disciplines in his life. It says, as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath. And he's obviously a man of the word. He's quoting it all the time and and reciting it all the time and pointing people to it all the time. He's a man of prayer. He's a man of fellowship. He devotes himself to the means of grace that helps him grow in his intimacy with his father. Listen to one commentator. In Mark's gospel, desolate place where he goes off to pray. And then when he meets with the leper, desolate place, desert, is where the divine and satanic vie for life. Think of Jesus off on the Mount of Temptation battling Satan in the desert, in the wilderness. But after Jesus' victory in the desert, however, the desolate place has become a place where one can seek solitude and prayer and receive divine replenishment and where angels give comfort. The desire for secluded prayer makes it plain that Jesus is not a sorcerer working by magic independent of God's help. His authority, strength, and power come from God alone. Remember Jesus says in chapter 9, 29 of Mark that this kind of demon can only come out by prayer. He's devoted to this life of prayer. And Jesus is not just our representative in all things. He's our example in all things, the Bible says. We need to be people who are marked by prayerfulness. It's so convicting for me to read passages like this, seeing the Son of God made sure prayer was a priority in his life. He gets up before the sun comes up and defies intuition and expectations by carving out time to be with the Father. And we need to be the same. Fourth thing about this king is he is a wise king. Daniel actually used this word. He's he's going the way of wisdom, not the way of popularity. He's going the way of wisdom, not the way of acclaim. He's going the way of wisdom, not the way of pragmatics, what seems to practically make sense. It's actually hilarious. The disciples say, everyone's looking for you, as if he didn't know that. And as if he was obviously going to say, oh, oh, my bad, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I thought thought prayer was more important. I'm sorry, I was obviously wrong. No, everyone's looking for you. What are you doing? What are you, just praying? Yeah, and everybody's looking for you. This thing is really growing here in Capernaum. And Jesus says, yeah, I know. Let's leave. He's defying their expectations. He's got an entirely different agenda. He's not a celebrity healer. You know what I realized as I was studying for this passage? It's amazing. I'm 50. I've been at this a long time. And I'm always just continually amazed and fed and instructed and understand things in new ways. I never thought about the fact that I don't think I can think of one example of Jesus looking for someone to heal. Where um, he, he, uh, he started a healing ministry. He had that but it came along with his preaching ministry. Oh, he was very intentional about preaching the good news. He was very intentional about making that the core of his ministry, as we see in this passage. He says, that's why I came out. Verse 38. 38. Yes. Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. That's why I came. 
fundamentally. And the healing, the compassion comes when that's the focal point. Doesn't mean he didn't see it as part of what he was doing, but he never says, let's go find people to heal. They come to him because of the good news they've heard. They're brought to him. The healing, he's not a celebrity healer. He's not into spectacles uh, to display dramatic things. He knows the clamor of the moment won't last. He knows popularity is fleeting and fickle and shallow. That's not what's driving him. He's not about building some impressive ministry by worldly standards. And then he even says, you demons, you shut up. Don't say anything about this. Isn't it stunning that often in the Bible, the demons know things better than the disciples, which should be really chilling to us. Knowledge is not enough. I, I teach theology at Biola University, and I bet most demons would ace most of my exams. I bet they'd all get A's on my theology exams at Biola. Jesus don't worship in response to all that knowledge. They don't obey in response to all that knowledge. Knowledge by itself is never enough. Demons are really knowledgeable. They say things like, what have you to do with the son of the most high God? And the disciples are like, what? What did he say? What did he just say about Jesus? They're clueless. And so you can know things that don't lead to worship and obedience and adoration. Jesus knows these things are fickle. That's why he says, you demons, shut up. I'm not going to the cross just yet. And you leopard, keep that to yourself. And, and he keeps saying this over and over again, and it's because he's in charge of his ministry. The timing of it, who gets to benefit from it, Jesus is running the show. And he needs lots of time to sow the word on his way to the cross. And he's managing this thing. He's running the show. Nobody's going to do it for him. He's determining the timing of it, who gets to benefit from it. When they do, he's in charge. And that's what this messianic secret's all about when he says, shh. Now we're on the other side of that. He's been to the cross, and now our job is to scream it from the rooftops. But then he's saying, not yet. Not yet. I'm still heading to the cross. I need to time this thing up right. And that's what he's doing. And, it, and this tendency of Jesus' ministry also makes laughable the accusations that they had against him, which is he's stirring up trouble. He's, he's trying to cause all this political problems, subvert Caesar's authority and the high priest's authority. He's just stirring up all this trouble. He wants to build this empire. It's so untrue. So untrue about Jesus' ministry. Those are totally empty charges. And ultimately, we trust that God in his perfect timing will reveal these mysteries, these secrets in full force when he wants to. So he's a wise king. He's not determined by public opinion polls and what the masses want him to do at the moment, even what his best friends want him to do at the moment. Peer pressure did not affect him. Even if it was so cool and everybody does it and everybody has to and everybody's doing it and everybody likes it, no. No, he wouldn't have even liked Beyonce, right? Even if it's, you know, you're not supposed to say that. Yeah, it's just, yeah, the popularity thing wasn't something that drove him. It didn't matter if everybody else was doing it this way. Jesus would say, no, I need to go the way of wisdom. I need to do what's right and wise, not what's popular and cool. Young people listen carefully to me and you old people too. Finally, Jesus is the preaching king. And this goes right along with his wisdom. He's the prayerful king because he's the wise king. And he's the preaching king because he's the wise king. Prayer and preaching is the center point of his ministry, even though miracles and popularity would have caused all sorts of other growth. No, he's going the way of wisdom, so he goes the way of prayer and preaching, which is why it's what we do in gather. What a crazy thing to do on a Sunday morning instead of watching football or sleeping. 
gather and, and preach the word and expect to grow from it and be transformed. That's why we do this. And preaching's getting hammered these days. It is so unpopular. And once last time outside evangelical, good evangelical preaching churches, you hear the word preach used in a positive way. Even in the church, people say like, you gotta love people before you preach to them. As if they're mutually exclusive. As if preaching is loving. As if communicating truth that sets people free is profoundly loving. You gotta love people first before you give them that shot they don't really want. No! No, you see, we have such a negativity toward preaching because it actually is a call to change, and that's intolerant, and that's not nice. No, it's profoundly nice and loving and, and what God has for us. And so preaching that calls people to turn from sin and self-destructive ways into truth is not intolerant and mean. When it's the truth, it's loving and life-giving. It's helping people see things clearly rather than, in a, than darkly. Preaching, the centrality of it is all over the Bible. Listen to one commentator. Mark makes clear that Jesus' first mighty act, this miracle, is closely tied to his teaching. That means that while we do not have the same access to the one who displayed such great power as those did who met him in the towns and synagogues of Galilee, we still have access to that power in Jesus' teaching. Got that? So the power displayed in the miracles is for Jesus and still for us, centrally displayed in the preaching of the word, what we're doing right now. God's people have always believed that the preaching of the word is powerful and transformative and life-giving, that God uses it, yes, even through a knucklehead, frail preacher to do amazing things. It did not disappear when he died. Jesus' teaching continues to produce mighty acts, this commentator says. Do you realize how prevalent preaching is as the central call of God's leaders? So the prophets are, are preaching to the sanctuaries, Ezekiel says. John the Baptist comes, and what does he do? He's one preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Jesus comes, and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, quoting the prophets, because he's anointed me to preach the good news to the poor to proclaim liberty to the captives and recover sight of the blind to set liberty to those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus says, I must preach the good news for the kingdom of, God, of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose, just like in our passage. This is why I came out. This is why I came in the first place, he says. And then when the apostles take the handoff from Jesus, they have a preaching ministry. It says in Acts 5, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus says the Christ. And Paul says, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. So preaching is what we're called to because we're called to the wise way. And miracles can mean lots of different things if they're not clarified and defined by the preaching of the good news, which is simply this, that we were dead in our sin. And Jesus came and can make us alive with him. That he took our place, he took our punishment, he took on our sin. And when we trust him and not our own self-righteous works, then we can have new life and freedom in relationship with God again. And we depend on him and we find new life in his new life in Christ, in his resurrection. And so we depend on Jesus. That's the gospel. That's the good news. So that even though you may experience miraculous healing now, you won't have to die forever. Death is still around the corner. And Jesus solves that problem. That's what we needed him to solve. He is the conquering king. He's the compassionate and prayerful and wise and preaching king. Let's rest in him now. Let's pray. Lord, help us 
to rest in the king. Thank you that he comes bringing his kingdom and advancing that kingdom in these amazing displays of his power and authority. But Lord, we're grateful that at the heart of it all is the good news of Jesus in our place. Lord, for anyone here this morning who's never trusted Christ, who's never said, not I, but Christ, not my unrighteous, filthy rags of my works, but Jesus' perfect righteousness, Jesus' perfect sacrificial death on a cross, and trusted him, I pray that this would be the morning, that they'd take that step away from their sin and toward Christ. And Lord, for all of us, I pray we'd all lean more heavily on the King, align ourselves with him and his ways, and find great freedom and forgiveness and sight and healing in him. We pray in Jesus' name. Just take a couple minutes and reflect, ask God what he may be wanting to do in your heart this morning.